Right, this evening I'm going to be looking at the story of the Good Samaritan, which is found in Luke chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible, open it up. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Um, Pete preached on Luke chapter 10 a few weeks ago, and he looked at the story of the sending out of the 72 and the story of Mary and Martha. And the, the Good Samaritan kind of comes in the middle of that. Um, it's a really, really well-known story. But if you don't know it, then um, Val, if you're ready, there's a quick clip for you to um, get up to speed. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with the story. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. <laughs> they stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed over on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his donkey and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now which of these three would you say was the neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus answered, Yes, now go and do the same. Thank you. And that's obviously very 100% accurate. That is what the Bible story was like. Yeah. Gotta love Tim Smith's laughter. Um, so put your hands up if you've heard that story in childhood, if you heard it in Sunday school or in assembly or if your parents told it to you. Yeah, so most of us. And actually, I was told that story a lot. And um, in my experience, the reason for telling that story was to teach good morals so that everybody is equal, everyone is our neighbor, no matter what race or religion they are, that we are to love them. Just as a Samaritan, who was one of the Jews' worst enemies, still loved the man on the road. And that's a really good message, loving mankind. But actually, it's not uniquely a Christian message. Um, other religions and those with no religion at all, humanists, for example, would agree with um, those morals and that message. Perhaps that's why it's become such a well-known and well-used story. Um, it appeals to lots of people. Um, but if the story stops with that message, if it's simply and only about helping people in need and loving one another, and if we don't scratch any further, then it ends up as a nice ethos, a code of practice to live by. And it can um, focus us on behavior and on doing the right thing and on being really nice. Um, nothing inherently wrong with those things at all. But if all, that's all that uh, we get from the message, then actually it can spring into legalism. 
Because legalism is defined as an adherence to the moral law rather than personal faith. So if you stress obedience and doing the right thing and acting well apart from your faith, then you produce legalism. Um, so my aim this evening is really to take a fresh look at the story to explore some of the deeper meaning in it because I believe that it is a really uniquely Christian message and it's a really powerful one and it's got the, the power to transform lives because it's got Jesus right at its centre. Uh, we know that it's a parable and Jesus used lots of those and the thing is with parables is they have kind of hidden layers, deeper meanings when you look into them. So you think the story means one thing, and then you think, ah, it means that too. It doesn't mean that the first meaning of the story is wrong, it's just there's another layer to it, and they go hand in hand. Um, One of the methods that we're going to use when looking at this story today is something called Christology. Um, Eugene Peterson, who's the uh, author of the Message Bible, said that Jesus is the lens through which we view the Bible. And um, it's kind of, if you imagine, you've heard the expression rose-tinted glasses, where you put rose-tinted glasses on and everything seems rosy and lovely. Well, if you use the lens of Christ when looking at the Bible, you actually see him in the story. And um, it's often in parables Jesus gave um, a deeper meaning, and it often pointed to who he was, and um, it has uh, power within it. Um, another way of putting it, it uh, Val, would you mind putting the PowerPoint up? With the, um... Yeah, great. Another way of putting it would be imagining that the Bible is a bit like a Where's Wally page. So in the books of Where's Wally, there's a really busy page where you have to search for Wally. So uh, see who can find Wally first. Can anybody find Wally? Yeah, he's on the beach. <laughs> Bolo, you can see him? Irene, you can see him? One for each of you, see. It, uh, it. He, is, he is by the uh, green windbreaker at the bottom, just to the right-hand side of the green windbreaker. Yeah. But it pays to listen to my sermons. It's a trick of the trade with youth work. So, um, <laughs> keep listening and you might get some sweets. <laughs> so the idea is that... Um, not to compare Jesus to Wally, but in a Where's Wally page, <laughs> this could go terribly wrong. In a Where's Wally page, you have to search hard to find Wally. So when we're using Christology and we're looking at um, a Bible passage, sometimes you, you search and search until you find Jesus in it, and then you think, aha, another meaning, brilliant. Okay, um, I've asked Hannah Schultz, where are you? Hannah, can you come up? Um, I've asked Hannah to come and read a passage. Um, to read the passage to you. Because as accurate as the um, Lego one was, I thought you might like to actually hear it from the Bible. Brilliant. Half and half. Brilliant. Hang on a minute. Is that working? Pete, how's that? Sorry. Carry on. Yeah, I think that was coming from my mic. I can kind of lean over to you. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. 
but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Um, in reply, Jesus said, a man going down from Jerusalem to, Jer- uh, Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When they saw the man, um, he passed by to the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and took his bandages and wounds, pouring, oils, uh, pouring on oil and wine. Then um, he put a man on his donkey and brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after them, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have had. Which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert replied in the law, um, the man... Uh, The expert to the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Thank you. Brilliant. Could you go to the first um, slide, Bowser? That's the one. Brilliant. So at the time of Jesus, there were lots of different denominations of Jews, just like there are many denominations of Christians today. So you have Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and lots of other small groups, and they all wanted to interpret scripture. Um, and so discussions like this around the law were very common. Um, we see an expert of the law is just trying to figure out what type of Jew Jesus is and how he interprets the law. Um, I want to start with looking at the person that Jesus is telling the story to, because that gives us a clue as to why he told it. Um, this story wasn't originally intended for modern-day Christians to make them feel like they should be doing more or even preaching at lazy people. So um, who is the story directed to? It's, it's directed to a man who's an expert in the law. He asks lots of questions. He wants to know what he needs to do to inherit eternal life, very much with a law focus. What law do I need to follow? He's focused on outward behavior. What must I do? to inherit the kingdom, which is a bit of a daft question, isn't it? Because you can't do anything to inherit. You just inherit when somebody dies. Um, And once he's given an answer from Jesus, he wants to clarify it. He wants to know who the neighbor is. See, in religion, the purpose of obeying the law is that you want to make sure you're okay with God. The man wants to know exactly what he's got to do because he has to push all the right buttons. Uh, Luke says that he's trying to justify himself. So you'll tend to write into the law all sorts of details so that you can assure yourself that you're obeying things to the letter. Um, his religion is dependent on him and his obedience and not on good, God's goodness towards him. So the focus on the law is actually separating this man from God. He's focusing on himself and what he has to do. It's not a man awash with the love and acceptance of God. He's not read David Webster's new book on royal identity. Which, um, you can pay me later, David. <laughs> this is who Jesus decides to tell the story to. And this is the man and the reason behind the story. And I believe that when Jesus heard him, he had great compassion for, for him. I believe that he could see how distant he was from God and how wrong he'd actually got it. Okay, let's look at the story itself. So the setting. If you could move to the next slide, Father. 
one of the road. This isn't actually my personal photo. I wish it was. If Hugh's here, is Hugh here? No. Um, but this is what a road at the time would have looked like uh, without all the people. Um, and the road um, from Jericho to Jerusalem that Jesus is talking about was known to be a very dangerous road. So a historian at the time, Josephus, said that people used to take weapons with them along this road. Um, so it's no surprise then that in the story we see a man who's uh, set upon, beaten up and left half dead. It's also no surprise that there's priests and Levites traveling along the road. We know that the road was used by workers of the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem and many Jews lived in Jericho. And it would take about eight hours to walk this road. So workers in Jerusalem would often work for a few days and then return home for a break before going back and repeating the pattern. So the first character that comes along the road is the priest. Now, often in retellings of the Samaritan, the priest comes along, uh, along and he's presented as very aloof and very uncaring. Um, but I think this would have been quite unlikely. I think he would have wanted to feel, fulfill his duty under the law. I think he would have, um, as any good priest would have done, tried to figure out um, what his duty would have been to this man. Uh, the trouble for him may have been working out what that law actually was. If you could go to the next slide, um, Val. Thank you. There's a verse in Leviticus 19.18 which says, Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And it was a common interpretation of this scripture at the time that um, many Jews believed that your neighbor was other Jews. And so the priest uh, would have been responsible for helping this man on the road had he um, been a Jew. But what do we know from the man on the road? We know that he was naked, um, so there were no kind of clues as to his identity there. We know that he was half dead, so he wouldn't have been able to talk much. He, He wouldn't have been able to give away by his language or his accent whether he was Jewish or not. Um, We also know that the man was half dead, so the priest might not even know if this man was alive. And that's a big deal for the priest, because actually if he was dead, um, that would have made the the priest ceremonially ceremonially unclean. So the priest would have had to get quite close to this guy to see if he was breathing. And if for any reason he wasn't breathing, he would have... Um, affected the priest's purity, and he would have had to go all the way back to Jerusalem. Who knows how far down the road he was? Um, and he would have had to complete a very long purification ceremony. It would have been quite a big hassle for him. So in the end, uh, it was too risky for the priest to stop and help, and he passes by. The law restricted the priest's ability to love, and his desire to stay pure meant that his love was not... Um, as powerful. I wonder if the man that Jesus is telling the story to, the expert in the law, um, identified with the priest. I wonder whether he recognized the restraints of the law on this man. Um, so we're starting to get to the deeper meaning of the story that actually the priest is representing the law and, and its abil- inability to save man. Um, Now, the temple was in Jerusalem, and three main uh, classes of people worked there. You kind of had the priests, and then you had the Levites, and then you had the laymen. So the priests were kind of like the top dogs. So they would be 
the equivalent of a professor in university. And the Levites might be your kind of postgrad students, and the layman would be kind of your undergrads. Um, so the Levite that's coming along would have been subservient to the priest, and it's likely that he would have been working with him in the table uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and it's not unlikely that he would have known that the priest was ahead of him on the road. Uh, so maybe the Levite's thoughts went something like this. Comes across the man and thinks, huh, the priest went off an hour ago, and uh, he obviously didn't stop to help this man. If I stopped to help this man, maybe I'd be going against the authority of the priest. I'd be questioning the priest's interpretation of the law. And uh, I'm not as wise or as learned as the priest. I'd better go along with what he thinks and I'll leave him. See, what the law did is it brought hierarchy and levels of man that some men were more able to interpret scripture or more able to connect to God than others. So perhaps the fear of man caused this Levite to walk by, not being able to interpret the law for himself. And he couldn't save the man either. So how would you feel if you were the man lying there? Lucky that two people had passed by, but then they're walking away. You feel extreme disappointment, that desperation that you can feel yourself wasting away and losing hope, not knowing if anyone else is going to come at all. And that's when the hero of our story comes in. I'm sure you know that from retellings uh, that the Samaritans were enemies of the Jews. Uh, they lived in Samaria, they worshipped at a different table, at a different temple, and um, the expert of the law listening to this story would have, wouldn't expect the Samaritan to be the hero when he's first introduced. In fact, he was the enemy. Perhaps he thought he'd give the man an extra kick. Uh, could we go to slide four, where it's the... Um, not that one. If we go back a couple, Val... That's it. Keep going back. One more. That's the one. Oh, back again. That's it. <laughs> so the first thing that we see about the Samaritan in verse 33 is that he took pity on the man. And um, that's the very thing that the law had failed to do. Uh, the, the New American Standard Bible version where it uses the word compassion instead of pity, which I think is a bit more... Um, telling. And in the Greek, the word literally meant like uh, deep inner movement of bowels <laughs> um, out of compassion. So like the whole of the man's being was filled with compassion and deep love. Um, it's the same word that's used in the story of the prodigal son when the son comes home and the father sees him and it says he was filled with compassion and he ran and he greeted the son and he hugged him. Well, that's how the Samaritan felt when he saw the man on the road. The second thing that we see about the Samaritan is that he uses wine and oil. The wine presumably to cleanse the wound of the man and the oil for healing. Now, by this point, you may have a good idea of who the Samaritan in the story is. It's Jesus. And this is where the story actually starts to get very personal. Because that man on the road, he represents mankind, that's us. And in John 10.10, it says that the devil roams the earth and seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. So just as the bandits on the road 
stole from the man and tried to destroy him, so the devil tries to alienate us and the world from God. He tries to steal and destroy life. And every Christian has that moment where Jesus sees you in all the mess that you're in, and he's moved with deep mercy, deep compassion, deep love for you. He sees the value in you, even when it looks messy. And in that moment, he comes to cleanse you from all your sin, like that wine, and he heals your relationship with God, making you spiritually whole. But the story doesn't end there. Not only does the Samaritan stop for the man and bandage him up, what he does next is astounding. He puts the man on the back of his donkey and he takes him to an inn. Now this would have been an extremely risky thing to do. So you imagine the scene, you're in Jericho, you're a good Jew who's in a good Jewish neighborhood and a Samaritan walks into your town. They're your absolute enemies and they're not welcome in your town. And if they did enter, then they're on very hostile ground. It's a bit like a Jewish ghetto. But not only is he walking into your town, on the back of his donkey, he's got a guy who is covered in blood, who's <laughs> bruised, is, it looks very, very dodgy. You think, it's kind of the equivalent now of a Middle Eastern man coming with a half-dead guy in the back of his car. You know, this guy could have got lynched for going into a Jewish neighborhood with this man on the back of his donkey. It was extremely risky. And he could have been killed. And in the same way, in the, paro, in the parallel story where Jesus is the Good Samaritan, we know that Jesus did risk his life when he walked on the earth. Um, he claimed to be the Son of God, to save mankind, forgiving their sins and making them whole. And some people didn't believe that him. In fact, they hated him. They were suspicious of him, as the people in Jericho were probably suspicious of the Samaritan coming in. And as we know... Jesus was ultimately killed so that he could save us. Let's look at what happens next. The innkeeper gives two denarii to the man. Uh, Sorry, not the innkeeper. The Samaritan gives two denarii to look after the man, gives it to the innkeeper. Now, the currency that the good Samaritan paid with was denarii, which is um, a small silver coin. And this in itself is quite significant because it's comparable with the story in Exodus. Um, at the time of Moses, there was something called atonement money, where the people of God would give a small silver coin as a sacrifice, and that would make them right with God. So you can find that in Exodus chapter 30 if you want to do some extra study. So that's atonement money. And now here's the Samaritan Jesus paying the silver coin, the atonement money, for this man that he found lying on the side of the road. The Samaritan pays the man out of his own resources, He pays the the price for the man's salvation and healing because the man has nothing. The robbers took everything from him. Similarly, we have nothing to put on the table when it comes to our salvation because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now suppose for one moment that the Samaritan hadn't paid for the man's care. Legally in that culture, if you couldn't pay for your debt, there was no... NHS to fall back on, if you couldn't pay for your uh, shelter or your, um, the debt that you owed, then legally you could have been sold into slavery. So the Samaritan, Jesus, not only saves the man on the road, cleansing him and healing him, but he also saves the man from being a slave. He pays the price so that this man can go free. 
And we sing a wonderful song at church, the song, um, I'm No Longer a Slave to Fear. And that's achievable because of Jesus and the price that he paid for our freedom. The freedom from sin and the freedom from being under the influence of the world. You're no longer a slave to fear because you are a child of God. He's adopted you into his family and you've got the best big brother in Jesus. So he liberates the man and he gives him freedom. Uh, For a long time there had been a Jewish concept of a Messiah, one that Jews had hoped to liberate them from oppression and from rule. Someone powerful, maybe a priest or a religious uh, or a royal leader. And Jesus came in a very unexpected package, uh, coming from a very humble background. If you had asked the expert in the law at the start of this story who he thought would save the man on the road, he would have picked the priest. And Jews were expecting the Messiah to come in that kind of format. But their Messiah came like the Samaritan in an unexpected package and riding on a donkey. Um, If we could put up the Romans passage, that'd be great. I just thought this passage so beautifully parallels the story of the Good Samaritan that I thought I'd read it out to you. So this is the message version, which is a slightly um, different one to what you're used to for this really well-known passage. So with the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote or unimportant. In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it was by its fractured human nature, could never have done that. So we get the idea, this is Paul writing after Jesus has died. He's, He's saying that the law never had that power to save man. Uh, Jesus comes, and he doesn't deal with it remotely. I love that, that he took it on himself. He left, he, li- he was living with God in paradise. He left that to come and walk the earth and to come in all of its mess and to come and save you and I from our sin and to make us free. Uh, there's one other character in the story that's worth mentioning, and that's the innkeeper. Now, the innkeeper is given the resources by the Good Samaritan, to administer and use and restore the man. So who does the innkeeper in the story represent? Well, I think Christians are a pretty good fit. Yes, we're the man on the road, but once we're saved, we get to be the innkeeper too. You see, the innkeeper gets to steward the resources given to him by the Samaritan. And so he co-labors with the Samaritan to restore the man. The Samaritan uh, leaves after a night. And he's left in the care of the innkeeper. Um, We get to steward the goodness of God and the healing of God to those that he brings to us. So everybody gets to be an administrator, Liz. It's not just you. (laughs) Even Pete gets to be an administrator. Did you know that to administrate means to manage or direct the affairs of an institution, individual, or maybe even a kingdom? That's an exciting way of defining administration, isn't it? 
So the Samaritan trusts the innkeeper. He gives him the money in advance to pay for the healing of the man, and he trusts the innkeeper to use that um, for the purpose of restoration, not just to pocket it. Uh, So he trusts us to be his co-workers. The Apostle Paul uses that phrase all the time. We're co-workers with Christ. And it seems very fitting and very right that we're the innkeeper. We have a very important job to do, but we're not the saviour of the world or of mankind, because he is. And sometimes if you're feeling overly anxious or feeling like you should be here or should be there, then just say to yourself, I'm not the saviour of the world. (laughs) I really am not, but I get to partner with him, and that's exciting, because he can be with many of us all at the same time, Um, and I can't be in a hundred places at once, but he can through his spirit. Uh, We work hand in glove with him, and that stops us from legalism, remembering that we're dependent on him and we partner with him. It produces a life of faith. It doesn't make us weak, but it makes us strong. And one day, he will reimburse you for your efforts too. Just as the Samaritan and the innkeeper will meet again, so will you and Jesus, and he'll reward you for what you've done. That's what is promised at the end of the Samaritan story. Now, let's see how Jesus ended the story. So if you could go back to slide four, Val, and we'll look at uh, verse 36. Um, In verse 36, Jesus asks the man, who was the neighbor? Who is the neighbor to the man on the road? And this is a really important question and a brilliant way to end the story because you have to recognize who the good Samaritan is, who the good neighbor is, before you can go and do likewise, which is what is said next. So who is your neighbor? Who is the good Samaritan? Well, first and foremost, it's Jesus, isn't it? He's the best neighbor that you'll ever have. And he crossed space and time to meet you. He showed his love for you, and it's recorded in history for everybody to see. And once you're in relationship with him, then everything changes. Before you meet him, actually, you focus your love on who deserves it. You may feel like you're a very good person. Um, You may give to sick children and victims, and people are very worthy of your attention and your love but you're still limited in how much love you can give unless you know his love for you. Because his love for you is unconditional and it's perfect. And if you want to have unconditional and perfect love, then you need to be rooted in him. Um, When I was 18, I went to work in a night shelter in Bedford and it was the biggest shock of my life. I came from a relatively uh, nice part of the world in Surrey and um, I had not been exposed at all to um, to this part of society. The first month that I was there, I mean I thought I was a nice person before I went, I really did. I thought I was a really good person, I thought I loved people really well and I got there and I spent the first month feeling really angry actually (laughs) because our job, like it was really fun to hear about this new night shelter opening up. The the job was to cook for 25 residents, and every day we would make their beds with fresh white linen sheets, and we would hoover the floors, and we would uh, wipe the wee around the toilet, and we would do the night shifts, and it was hard work. Um, 
most of the time, the people actually were not very grateful of our help. And that sometimes they were even rude and they were demanding. So you do one thing and they say, oh, can't I have this as well? And you think, oh, <laughs> it was exhausting. Um, I, was, I was called a mini Hitler when I was there. That was one of my favorite names. <laughs> it's all right. I got healed from it. <laughs> Had a sozo. I actually found it quite funny. I got called a whippersnapper as well from an old gentleman. It's also a good one. Um, But I realised that actually my love was limited to those that were like me or those that I felt deserved it or those that were grateful and thankful. And uh, God transformed my heart in that time to understand his grace for me. Um, And he poured his love into my life. And it was so good and so unconditional and so merciful that actually it became a lot easier to love these people because I was no longer doing it out of my own efforts and my own um, moral standards and my own law. But I was doing it because I was connected to him and I understood his love for me. So even if they weren't saying thank you or even if they were being ungrateful, I, I had a bigger vision and I had a bigger purpose. I was thinking, well, God loves me and he's grateful and he's all, he's all you need. He really is. <laughs> he fulfills every, every need that you have. Um, once we know the mercy that Jesus has shown us, his kindness, then we're more likely to do so to others. He transforms your life and he makes you very, very powerful. Val, if you could um, go to the, the John verse, which I think is Right at the end. That's the one. Uh, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Seems very simple, doesn't it? (laughs) One of the cornerstone theologies of this church is that we pursue him and we pursue his face and we we center our worship and our meetings around his presence. And that's the most important thing. And we must never apologize for keeping that central. Because actually, that's the perfect place for social reform to come out of. Because when people step into their destiny, when they understand their identity, then they change the world around them wherever they go. And they're able to serve in a new way out of compassion, like the Samaritan, like Jesus, and not under the law. And you're given a new heart. Um, I'm grateful for our apostolic grounding and everything that Pete brings because it's really important in creating a culture that focuses around grace and not on law. So that's really all that I want to share tonight. Um, I haven't really focused much on the go and do likewise part, which is normal for a sermon on the Good Samaritan. Um, But really, the go and do likewise part is for you and God to figure out together because he gives each of us a mission, and each of us are calling. Um, once you're in connection with him, you will bear fruit. It's encouraging, isn't it? But you don't have to try really, really hard. That you just will bear fruit when you're in relationship with him. So the message tonight is not really how to be a good Samaritan, because there's only one of those. And he's already paid all of that price for us. Um, but it's uh, how to know the good Samaritan, and how to know his love. And then with that, you can change the world. (laughs) Um, I just feel like tonight I want to pray for people who um, 
first of all, for people that feel like they're on that road and that no person that's passed by has been able to satisfy that need, that need that you have for um, washing you or clean of sin, washing you of guilt. Um, so I want to pray for those people. I also want to pray for those people that actually, you feel like you're a pretty good person, actually. You don't feel like you're beaten up along the side of the road. But you know that you don't have power to love. Um, you don't know that unconditional love of God in your life and in your identity. And um, then the third people I want to pray for is the kind of the innkeeper people, so the Christians. So if you wouldn't mind closing your eyes, you're going to start praying for us. Father God, I thank you for sending Jesus, your son, and thank you that you are love and you are compassion, and that you have compassion and love on every person in this room. I thank you that you see value in them. And I pray now that um, for those that haven't met you before, that have maybe been relying on other people to be their saviour, that you would come and meet with them now. Just invite him in and say, God, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my disconnection with you. Holy Spirit, I pray you would come and meet with those people. Tell them how much they are loved. Father, I pray for those that are um, lacking in power to love. I pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit now and fill them and connect them with you. Help them to see their value in you, your unconditional love for them. And I pray that through that, that they would um, be powerful people, that they would be able to love, not worried about staying pure, about, about associating with people that don't deserve it. And I pray for those who have already had that life-saving encounter with you. Well, I pray that our partnership with you would be the most important thing in our lives. That um, we would stick close by to you. You'd protect us from becoming legalistic. Thank you that you are our all, God. Thank you that you give us all we need. And you put those uh, that we need to love into our lives. Thank you for your amazing love. Amen.